This is Ian Hartley. And I'm Warren Kay. Welcome to the Rediscovering God podcast. We invite you to join us as we endeavor to see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. Hello, Warren. Hi, Ian. I wish I had a last name like K, only three letters. It's very convenient. I have a first name like that, Ian, I-A-N. Except when I tell people my last name, they think I'm just telling them the letter K and don't realize that's the whole name. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> um, so today we're talking about the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Yes. And what they uh, stood for, of course, were symbolic. Um, so you have these two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. And uh, these, uh, these are two views of God. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the view of God that God is good, but he also has the dark side to him. So as and, we've said several times, that's the view that the Hebrew writers uh, bought into. Yes. And not only the Hebrew writers, but uh, most modern Christians. True. Uh, uh, and, and the reason I know this is because I listen to people's public prayers. Um, because that's the only way I can really get a, a concentrated picture of what they think about God. So I'm going to share with you a, a relatively modern uh, prayer uh, nearer the end of the examples we give of Old Testament characters. So um, this tree of knowledge of good and evil represents the dualistic picture of God, that God has two natures in him, uh, a good side and a bad side. And it's very common in the Middle East, the yin-yang principle, and also the Persians, Ahura Mazda, concept of God, um, that there's this bad side and good side to God. And uh, that's the dualistic God. So the serpent, when he comes to uh, Eve, says, uh, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good from evil. So the first thing we'd like to say is that this word knowing uh, is not collecting information. It's experiencing because uh, in chapter, in the next chapter in Genesis, it will say that Adam knew his wife when she conceived. Mm -hmm. So that's not talking about accumulating facts. Uh, it's talking about a very intimate experience. So what the serpent is implying is that God actually experiences evil. And if she eats from this tree, she's also going to experience evil. Now, there's a difference between experiencing and knowing evil. I know about pedophiles, but I have no experience either as a victim or a perpetrator. I, I have this theoretical concept, but I've never had that experience. So you can have a theoretical 
concept that that is not what we're talking about here. So you're saying that the devil is actually this is the first lie that he's saying that yeah. God experiences good and evil. He is the originator of good and the originator of evil. Yes. Um, huh. Interesting. So, so if you see God as a being uh, who is also evil, then it's very important to stay on his good side. And uh, you can do that um, by, uh, by what? You can do it by uh, being very subservient, uh, repenting, confessing. I'm not saying those are bad things. Uh, I'm just saying that the reason people often do that is to get onto God's good side, and then you can offer sacrifices. And the, the best sacrifice is the most valuable one. Yeah. So it got to the point where people would offer their children as a sacrifice to try to change God's mind about them. Yeah. Terrible. This picture of God is so pervasive that it almost appears to me that the only uh, being who knew the truth about the matter was Jesus. He, he came to show us that the, the tree of life is actually the representation of God, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm -hmm. So um, the way I want to do that is to show you first the picture that Old Testament characters had of God, and then look at uh, a modern view of God, and then finally to look at the picture Jesus presented of God. Okay. And notice the contrast. So let's start with Satan. Um, a, he clearly believes that uh, God is evil. And if you read uh, Job chapter 1, verse 11. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, so he, he's saying to God, you must strike everything he has. Yes. So he's implying that God's going to bring this misfortune and tragedy on Job. He does the same in the second chapter, 2 verse 5. But stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yeah. So Satan's of the opinion that God does violence to people, and uh, he just needs to do this to Job. So... How about Job? What did he believe? Well, first of all, it's so interesting that these first two chapters of the, of the book of Job um, seem to have been added at a much later date to the story. And there are at least two reasons I can give you for believing that. First of all, the name Satan is never used in books before uh, the exile. You can read from Genesis to, um, I'm not sure, Isaiah, and you won't find Satan mentioned there. It's only mentioned in Chronicles and Zechariah. Chronicles was written very late in the Old Testament. It's one of the last books written. It was written to encourage the exiles to believe that God would take care of them if they left Babylon and came back to Judea. Hmm. So the uh, Chronicles leaves out most of the negative stuff. And 
has little in but mostly positive dealings of God with his people. And then it's also in the book of Zechariah, which is post-exilic. So we think because the word Satan is used, uh, it's post-exilic, these first two chapters. And then there's another reason. Uh, the book of Job is poetry in motion. But these first two chapters are in prose. And they're stylistically different. Okay. So... Yeah, you know, we believe what uh, makes us happy, but I just wanted to throw that in. So this is what Job says, chapter 1, verse 21. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's interesting so that most funerals that I attend have this uh, idea Uh the Lord has taken away our friend. Uh, blessed be the name of the Lord. He needed another angel in heaven or wanted to prevent more suffering. It's, it's always death is attributed to God. Mm -hmm. Following on this, this particular statement of Job has just settled into our psyche. And uh, it's very pervasive in its influence. So chapter 2, verse 10. He replied, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In this, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So clearly Job believes in a dualistic view of God. Good comes from him, but trouble also comes from him. Yeah. Now, Job surfaces in the rest of the book, mainly in his prayers to God for redress. His friends are saying to him, you've done something wrong, so God is punishing you. And Job uh, maintains his innocence, and then he prays like in 6 verse 4, or he comments 6 verse 4. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Yeah, so uh, he understands that what's happening to him is coming from God. Yeah, no question in his mind. And, and the, he says this repeatedly in, in the book. Uh, he has another example, chapter 10, 2 to 3. I will say to God, don't simply condemn me. Tell me the charge you are bringing against me. What do you gain by oppressing me? Why do you reject me? The work of your own hands while smiling on the schemes of the wicked? I like that, while smiling on the schemes of the wicked. So we could read another four or five uh, um, statements like this from Job, but I think we've made the point. Um, if you look through the book of Job, he keeps saying these things, to God or about God. And, and we won't need to go there, but his friends that came to visit him, that was their idea as well, that God is doing this to you because somehow you have sinned. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, so Moses, who wrote the first five books in our Old Testament, is writing around about the 13th century before Christ. Moses believes that God can destroy anyone he wants to destroy. And although Moses already knows about the commandments that are going to be given at Sinai, which uh, includes the commandment, thou shalt not kill, he sees that uh, um, killing is 
perfectly legitimate for God. So when he's writing about the flood, he'll say in Genesis 6 verse 7, the following. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, and I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I'm sorry I ever made them. So uh, Moses has no ethical problem with recording this. Uh, it's just okay for him. He just records it just like that. So he also tell, Moses also tells the story of Abram. Uh, in Genesis 18. And uh, this is what Abram understands about the destruction of Sodom. It will certainly be by the hand of the Lord. Read 18 verse 7, please. Abraham approached him, talking about the Lord, and said, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? So Abraham believes that God is going to destroy Sodom. Yeah. No question in his mind. Coming uh, back to Moses, Moses is certain that God is inflicting the evil that manifests in the ten plagues on Egypt. Uh, for instance, in Exodus 3, verse 20, he says, So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go. So, God says, um, I am going to strike the Egyptians. Yeah. Um, so striking the Egyptians resulted in a lot of death and suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and then when you come to the blessings and the curses, Moses is certain that God punishes disobedient people in very violent ways. Leviticus 26 is about the blessings in the first half and the second half is about the curses. So here's a, a passage from the second half, Leviticus 26, 16. I, the Lord, will punish you. I will bring sudden terrors upon you, wasting diseases and burning fevers that will cause your eyes to fail and your life to ebb away. You will plant crops in vain because your enemies will eat them. I will turn against you, and you will be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you will rule over you, and you will run even when no one is chasing you. Yeah, I will bring, God speaking, sudden terrors upon you, wasting diseases and burning fevers. And this chapter, Leviticus 26, carries on in this vein up to verse 39. It's a whole long litany of the tragedy that God will bring on his disobedient people. And it's horrific. It is. Yeah. And then at the very end of his life, um, this is in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book, and Moses has come to the end of his life. He's giving his uh, last speech to the Israelites, uh, and he summarizes God for them after showing the impotence of false gods. And he says in verse 39, Look now, I myself am he. There is no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. 
So that's, I can almost say that's Moses' deathbed picture of God. Right. This omnipotent God who, who does good and he can also violently do evil. So the, the next leader after Moses is Joshua. And Joshua is clear that the Lord is ordering the execution of the people of Jericho to placate the Lord. Listen to Joshua 6 verse 17. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. I, I never sort of read that verse like that before. That everything must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Like, this is really going to make God happy. Yeah, that's, yeah, I hadn't noticed that at, at all. Okay, so now we, we jump a few centuries and we come to whoever wrote the book of Samuel. And uh, the writer is certain that the Lord is a source of evil. So 1 Samuel 16, 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant said unto him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord from God troubleth thee. Let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee, to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. And it shall come to pass, when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, that he shall play with his hand, and thou shalt be well. So, does that bother you at all, that the evil spirit is from the Lord? Yeah, there's no question they believe that God's spirit left, but God sent an evil spirit. Yeah. 1 Samuel 16, 23, same chapter, just a few verses down. And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took it and harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And two chapters down, 1 Samuel 18, 10. And it came to pass on the morrow that the evil spirit from God came upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house, and David played with his hand as at other times, and there was a javelin in Saul's hand. And one chapter down, 1 Samuel 19, 9. And the evil spirit from the Lord was upon Saul as he sat in his house with his javelin in his hand and David played with his hand. So the fact that it's uh, noted that this evil spirit came from the Lord or from God in all of these passages in Samuel tells you that the writer is trying to emphasize that this evil spirit came from God. Yes. And he doesn't just say an evil spirit. He, he wants you to know that this came from God. So in 2 Samuel, we have this description of God's punishment on King David for his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, and he writes as follows, 2 Samuel 12, verse 11. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will ca cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in a public view. So Warren, if you thought of that kind of punishment for a person, I would regard you as an evil man. Yeah. But this didn't bother 
the writer of Samuel, or the prophet Nathan who brought this message to him. And, and even today, we read that and we often don't even uh, see it as something that's immoral. Uh, yeah. It's what God does, and God can do whatever he wants to do, and so we just have to accept that. So let's move to King David and his picture of God. King David reigned about a thousand years before Jesus came. Um, so he, <laughs> he likes to pray to God about what he would like happen to his enemies. And implied in his prayers is his view that God can do this uh, to his enemies. Um, so here's a good one in Psalm 58, verse 6. So he's praying for God to do something against the enemies. And he says, break off their fangs, O God. Smash the jaws of these lions, O Lord. And then verse 10. The godly will rejoice when they see injustice avenged. They will wash their feet in the blood of the wicked. That's and some communion service. Yeah. And then in 59.13, destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. So um, David uh, sees God quite capable of violent intervention yeah. with death and suffering. So we go 200 years down the timeline. We come to Isaiah. And... Uh, he writes in chapter 45, verse 7. I create the light and I make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things. I'm the Lord who does these things. This reminds me of what Moses said at the end of his life when he summarizes his picture of God. Now, I would like to tell you that uh, that picture of God all ended when Jesus came 2,000 years ago. Uh, it hasn't. Um, there's an interesting story by uh, Mark Twain, the American humorist. Uh, he was, you know, humorist comedians are very perceptive people, and they uh, take to extreme some of our practices and views. And then it really becomes funny or very tragic. Yeah. Uh, so Mark Twain um, writes this story. It's called The War Prayer. And it's about the Civil War uh, in the States. And these Christians are all going to a prayer meeting to pray for their boys who are going off to fight in the war. Mm. And the, uh, the preacher is going on with his platitudes. Uh, he says, uh, God, the all-terrible, thou who ordainest thunder, thy clarion and lightning, thy sword. And then he carries on praying for uh, protection for their boys and so on. Uh, an aged stranger enters and he walks up to the front and he motions to the preacher to step aside. And then he says this. I come from the throne bearing a message from Almighty God. He gives them a, a long lecture about the consequences of war. And then he prays this prayer, this stranger. Um, 
Lord, our Father, our young patriots, idols of our hearts, go forth into battle. Be thou near them, with them, in spirit. We also go forth from the sweet peace of our beloved firesides to smite the foe. O Lord, our God, help us tear their soldiers to bloody shreds with our shells. Help us to cover their smiling fields with the pale forms of their patriot dead. Help us to drown the thunder of the guns with shrieks of their wounded writhing in pain. Help us to lay waste their humble homes with a hurricane of fire. Help us to wring the hearts of their unoffending widows with unavailing grief. Help us turn them out roofless with their little children to wander unfriended in the wastes of their desolate land in rags and hunger and thirst sports of the sun flames in the summer and icy winds of winter broken in spirit worn with travail imploring thee for the refuge of the grave and denied it for our sakes who adore thee lord blast their hopes blight their lives protract their bitter pilgrimage make heavy their steps water their way with their tears stain the white snow with the blood of their wounded feet we ask it in the spirit of love of him who is the source of love, who is the ever faithful refuge and friend of all that are sore beset and seek his aid with humble and contrite hearts. Amen. Mercy. And after a pause, the stranger says, you have prayed it. If you still desire it, speak. The messenger of the most high waits. Have you ever heard that before? I've never heard that before. <laughs> That's quite some prayer. It fits with the kind of prayer that David was praying. Yes. And it fits with the kind of prayers Christian clergymen pray when Christian soldiers go to war. Yeah. They might not be as graphic and as to the point, but that's actually what they're praying for amazing i mean you know in in a spirit of love of him who is the source of love do all these terrible things to our enemy yeah then uh mark twain ends the story by saying it was believed afterwards that the man was a lunatic because there was no sense in what he said of course his tongue is in his cheek you know yeah there was perfect sense in what he had said yeah that's what they were all feeling and wanting prayed. So that's quite a, um, a, a summary of what we've talked about, this, this view of God from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it ends up with these kinds of pictures being portrayed about who God really yes. is. And it's, it's very comforting today. I mean, we have chaplains in the armed services. Uh, I'm not saying we shouldn't, uh, but they blessing these troops as they go out um, on their missions to destroy other human beings. Yeah. And, and the other army has the same thing there. Asking oh, yes. to bless their troops as they're going out against these troops. Sort of puts God in a spot. Who's he going to answer? Yeah. So the, the exception to all this is Jesus Christ. And he comes along and he shows that God is represented 
by the tree of life, not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this picture that Jesus brought was totally new for our suffering planet. Um, in John 13, verse 15, um, it says this, and sometimes we, we miss the, the importance of what Jesus is actually saying. He, in John 13, verse 15, he says this, I've given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Now, Jesus treated people with the utmost dignity and kindness and gentleness his whole life. Um, you, you, you really have to scratch to find anything violent in Jesus. And the best you can come up with is the cleansing of the temple, the cursing of the fig tree. And we've dealt with those in previous podcasts. Yeah. So, Ian, I think we should uh, conclude there for today and uh, pick this one up next time because we want to take a careful look at what Jesus' view is of God and how it's different than what we've uh, looked at today. I like that. Um, we should not uh, stretch the time further than the, the body can endure. Okay. We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us on this journey to understand the God that Jesus knew. And if you'd like to share this with friends, we'd appreciate that. In fact, we have created a new website called rediscoveringgod.ca. You can refer your friends to that site and they can see all the podcasts that we have produced so far and the ones uh, in the future will be posted there. Uh, you can make comments, you can join us in a dialogue and a conversation so that we can discover what difference this is making for you or any questions that you have that we can endeavor to answer or perhaps address in a future podcast. So that's rediscoveringgod.ca. In addition to the website, we've also created a WhatsApp site called Rediscovering God. So if you're on WhatsApp or would like to join us, uh, just search for us there or send me an email at wkay, S as in Sam, I-X, at gmail.com. And I'll be glad to add you to our group and we can continue the dialogue there.